Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. All right, Corey, it has been a while since we have done one of these episodes. You know, we've got this sub-series that started out as Can Technology Save Us? And after feedback, uh, you know, people were a little bit frustrated with that being the title. Um, We changed it uh, to Why Technology Won't Save Us. And the frustration came from us asking, why do not as many people listen to these episodes as our other episodes? And they said, because the title's stupid. Right. They're, they're like, we already know technology won't save us. Right. But we feel like these episodes are still really important because we have a chance to talk about what impact technology will have. There's so much out there. Almost any time that you talk to anybody about the idea of collapse, they're probably going to come back at you with hopium, right? Like so much hope in our ability to innovate and adapt and that we can come up with all these technologies that are going to save the day. And the purpose of these episodes isn't to, like, be able to battle those people and tell them they're wrong. There are things about these technologies that are important, and we should do them, right? Because they will be beneficial to the environment. They will help with resiliency and and all these different things. But the original title we asked is, will technology or can technology save us? And the answer to that question is going to be no. So, yeah, on the one hand... It's good to notice and respect the good about these technologies, but it is essential to understand their limitations and why they will not stave off collapse in the end. Yeah, so typically we try to include 
all the good that we see in these technologies and, and also take a critical look at them and, and talk about the limitations as well. I love learning about these technologies and they do provide a lot of hope for me personally because some of these I'm like, that'd be awesome to implement that. Like if I get a chance to, you know, adopt this technology or that technology, that's going to help me, you know, reduce my emissions. It's going to help me to save costs. It's going to help me to be more resilient. If we do this on a broader scale collectively, it's going to have this sort of impact or this impact. So understanding the role that all these innovations and technologies plays is really important. And this one in particular is something that has been requested of us uh, from listeners. In fact, it was a long time ago that we started getting some requests to talk about heat pumps. Um, but we haven't been able to get to it until now. Yeah, I'll be honest that I didn't know much about heat pumps. You know, people talk about them. I've, I've heard them being used as people saying that they are this super important thing to us hitting net zero. We've got to convert to heat pumps. Um, but that didn't mean a whole lot to me. I I'd kind of started learning about it over the last year or so. But having the chance to sit down and do some real research into it, figure out, okay, what is what is a heat pump? What's the technology? How does it work? What are the pros of using them? What are the cons and obstacles in our way to making it happen? And so let's dive in and maybe let's start with what is a heat pump? What's the technology behind it? Yeah, I'm right there with you. I didn't know a lot about it. And so to me, it's been fascinating to learn. So a heat pump, I mean, it's aptly named because it's a way of pumping heat either outside from a building or uh, pumping heat into a building. Um, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's the idea. You know, heat pumps don't generate heat. They move heat. So in contrast to like a furnace, which is burning fossil fuels at the site on site in order to create heat and then blow that through the house, you are saying that a heat pump moves heat from one place to another. It doesn't actually use energy to create any new heat. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's interesting because in a lot of ways, it's it's similar technology to like a refrigerator. And sometimes you think a refrigerator is creating cold. But in fact, it's taking this enclosed space and it's removing heat. It keeps removing heat until it's cold enough to refrigerate our foods, right? Or even create ice. So that's the same idea here. So there are ground source heat pumps and there are air source heat pumps. Um, usually when we're talking about heat pumps, we're talking about residential applications. And so in that case, we're talking about air source heat pumps. We'll talk just briefly about the differences, but it's the same general technology. Uh, the general concept for how it works is you've got like an inside unit usually and, and an outside unit. And the two are connected by uh, a refrigerant line, or I guess two lines, one going in and one going out. And in order to understand how heat pumps work, there's just a couple principles of thermodynamics. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Kellen's always bringing the thermodynamics into stuff. Yeah, these, these are really simple. Um, one of them is that heat always goes to cold. Okay. So... 
if if you've got something that's really cold uh like in a, in an open space heat will be drawn to that another is that when a fluid like particularly a, a vapor is compressed it heats up okay when it expands it cools down sure and there's some science behind that right as you, as you're compressing it's all those uh, molecules have a chance to bump into each other and it creates more heat another one i don't i don't know if this is necessarily a principle of thermodynamics but it's just important as context to understand is that we talk about refrigerants and i didn't really know a whole lot about what those are but basically you know water can be a refrigerant but usually when we're talking about refrigerants we're talking about other substances you know used for example with hvac systems because they respond to temperatures and they change phases differently. So, for example, water's boiling point is 212 degrees Fahrenheit. But if you look at some of the most common refrigerants out there, you know, like R134A is one of those, and its boiling point is negative 15.34 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, wow. Right, so the, the state at which it changes from a liquid to a vapor negative 15 degrees compared to water, which is you know, positive 212 degrees. For some other examples, R22 is another common refrigerant. Um, its boiling point is negative 41.4 degrees Fahrenheit. Hmm. And R410A... These are great names for remembering the differences. <laughs> uh, its boiling point is negative 55.4 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's the temperature at which it changes from a liquid to a vapor. So because they have a very low boiling point at which they turn from a liquid to a vapor, they can extract heat much more rapidly. And that's why refrigerants are used in these kind of systems. So those general principles of context, do you feel like you've got a clear picture on those before we talk about how these actually work? Clear enough. Probably as clear as any sort of science-related stuff was in high school to me. <laughs> okay, so we talked about how heat always goes to cold. Yeah. So if you've got these uh, refrigerant coils that are cold, as air passes over them, the heat gets absorbed, right? It's drawn to those cold coils. So let's say you're trying to um, cool your house. The refrigerant, it, as it's pushed out, outside and it gets compressed as it's cycled outside and remember as you compress this uh, vapor it's going to heat up since heat always goes to cold as long as it's hotter than the air outside the heat will then get dispersed outside so as the heat moves from that hot refrigerant to the colder outside air the refrigerant then gets decompressed there's an expansion valve, and like we talked about that principle of thermodynamics, what happens when you decompress a vapor? Cools down. Cools down. Right, so it causes it to cool. Um, in this case, with these refrigerants, it becomes a liquid. That's then pumped inside where it starts all over again. Right, so inside, air is pushed over those cold coils. It draws the heat. Then that 
that heat is taken outside and dispersed. So that's what we're talking about, trying to make things colder inside. You're taking the heat and you're pushing it uh, to the outdoors. But you can kind of flip things around, even within the same system, to where if you're trying to pull heat from outside into the house, it's the exact same process. And this works even when it's cold outside. Even even when we think like, oh, that's cold. We don't want any of that air coming in. There's still a certain amount of warmth within the air that can be absorbed and then pushed into the house. These heat pump systems used to have more troubles than they have now. They become much more efficient than in the past. It used to be that they'd kind of uh, turn on and, and heat up and, and then they'd shut off and they'd cool down and then trying to heat them up again, uh, you lost a lot of energy during that process. But now they're much more dynamic. So basically the rate at which the coolant is compressed and the rate at which the coolant is expanded and the the speed of the fan that's pushing the air over these coils, uh, all of that kind of works in concert with each other uh, in a much more efficient way. So these end up being really energy efficient systems. Okay, so so the technology makes sense. And now you're saying you're getting into the part where you're saying it's energy efficient. So it is better than an AC unit or a furnace, which of course is then going to be better for the environment, right? So is this where everybody's saying this is a key to net zero is because of the emissions by themselves or what else is going on here? Yeah. And I hesitate when you say like, Oh, so that means it's better uh, because there's pros and cons. Sure. So, but talking about the pros, you're right in that outside of this, usually our options are like electric heat or like, you know, natural gas or oil. And if you're talking about electric heat, usually an electric heater is like a hundred percent efficient, just meaning that for every watt you put in, you get out like one joule of heat. Okay. But heat pumps can be 300 to 500% efficient. Mm. So three to five times more efficient. And you might think, well, that's impossible. Like you can't just put a certain amount of energy in and get way more energy out. But again, it's not because they're actually creating heat. It's just because of the way they're moving heat that's already there. So a common claim that you'll see if it's compared to like electric heat is that, hey, a heat pump is 300% more efficient than electric baseboards. On the other hand, if you're heating your house with like natural gas, like a natural gas furnace, well, moving to a heat pump is a great way to reduce your carbon footprint uses so much less, you know, there's, there's so much less in terms of CO2 emissions and there is potential for this to really have a major impact. Like if you're just looking at it the way that we've described and you're saying, Oh, well, it's that much more efficient. It's worth considering that heating and cooling makes up 50% of energy consumption in Europe. Wow. And 80% of that comes from fossil fuels. Hmm. As a percentage, it's less in the U.S., but still 31% of U.S. energy consumption is from heating and cooling. That is wild to consider. Yeah, so right now the U.S. puts 
441 million tons of CO2 emissions out each year just from heating and cooling. So, yeah, it's apparent there then that the impact this could have. How much is it going to reduce by? I, I have a couple of numbers here that I found, but I'm curious if you what you found as far as potential for this to help. And so much of that has to do with how broadly it can be adopted. Right. Right. If you're just looking comparison, right, you can say, like we, we mentioned before, oh, it's 300% more efficient than electric heat. Sure. And it's going to reduce carbon emissions by X amount. But that's where I think it's worth getting into the ins and outs of where this is applicable, where it's not, what kind of adoption we can actually expect. One other factor there is, you know, I mentioned there's these air source heat pumps. There's also ground source heat pumps. Um, and sometimes those are called geothermal heat pumps. It's the same basic idea, but it's a little bit different because you can actually have like piping underneath your property, maybe four or five feet down. And the temperature, when you get that far underground stays much more consistent. And so those geothermal heat pumps are even more efficient than the the air source heat pumps and that plays a big factor however as you can guess they're much more expensive initially it takes a lot more capital to just install them in the first place and they're more difficult to maintain as well if there's any issues from what i understand because you can't just access them easily to make updates exactly and even within air source heat pumps there are different types right some more efficient than others so trying to pinpoint like, well, how much could it actually impact the the total number? That depends on so many different factors. Absolutely. So I do have, there was one study I found that tried to give that number, at least what kind of where we're headed, the potential over the next 10 years, um, and, and what impact that could have on carbon emissions. And basically it says they could reduce emissions by 500 million tons by 2030 if scaled up. Um, that doesn't mean it's got to be like a 100% adoption rate. I think it was saying right now um, we're about 10% of buildings and stru- structures in general that use heat pumps. They're saying if we could get to 20%, by 2030, that would cut emissions by 500 million tons. And that's that's a large number, but it's hard to put that into comparison, right, of, of what we're talking about um, globally. We emit 37 billion tons per year. So 500 million would be about 1.35% of global emissions. So, I mean, it's not zero, right? That's one point. Dropping our emissions by 1.35% is significant. Um, But it's, you can't really, you can't call that necessarily a game changer, right? Or as far as like uh, saving us from collapse. It alone obviously cannot get us to net zero. There are so many other aspects um, of our emissions that would also have to be cut at the same time, but it is an important step. It is a step in the right direction. Yeah. And that makes me think of so many of the other technologies that we talked about, certain battery technologies and electric vehicles and solar and wind power, all these things. And it's like, that'll make a little dent. Each one of them will make an impact. But no single one of them is just going to completely save the day. Right. And each one has its own 
obstacles and challenges, right? And we've talked about electric vehicles, um, solar, all these different things in the past, and they all have significant challenges. There are goals set in place for where we want to reach by 2030, by 2050, um, and hitting those goals would help put us in the right direction towards net zero, but it's not it's not perfect and it's not necessarily likely to happen with those goals. And even if we achieved net zero, that doesn't mean that we're staving off collapse, right? We're already baked in at whatever, you know, I, I, I lose track of where we're at now. Are we baked into 2.5 degrees at this point or four or whatever it is? Uh, it keeps changing, but, uh, yeah. So anyway, going further with that, um, it's frustrating when you consider that, um, countries like India, they just announced that they intend or they believe that there will be a five-fold increase in their natural gas usage in the coming years. They didn't give a specific um, date. They didn't say like over the next 10 years. They just said in the coming years, we believe that we will have a five-fold increase in our natural gas usage. Who knows where our total emissions are going to be in 2030 or 2040 or 2050? Will we as a global community have cut down on our emissions or will our emissions continue to grow? I don't know. But when you talk about cutting 500 million tons of emissions out of the equation because of heat pumps, again, number one, it's great. It's a great step in the right direction. Number two, it's still a relatively insignificant amount. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Uh, in 2021, like I said, heat pumps accounted for 10% of heating and cooling worldwide. So some countries have adopted it way better than other countries. Um, I know some of the Nordic countries use it a lot. Norway is like 60% or something, and they're one of the coldest countries, right? Um, heat pumps lose efficiency in the cold. They're not perfect in the cold. They're still more efficient usually than like furnaces uh, as far as fossil fuel usage or, or energy usage. Um, but it becomes a little bit harder in the cold to get as much out of them. And you do start to increase in your electrical cost and it can be significant. They say that it's around 40 degrees Fahrenheit that the efficiency starts to decrease. And, you know, I think about where we live, for example, um, that's six months out of the year that we're below 40 degrees Fahrenheit. So it does present a bit of a challenge. And on that note, um, there's a guy named Thomas Dietgen. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly. He won't hear this, so it's fine. 
<laughs> Never know. He could be one of our biggest fans. <laughs> yeah. Um, a research associate at the University of Texas at Austin. So this was research done by by him. Um, he says, using tools from the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, they simulated outcomes of widespread heat pump adoption. They modeled 400 locally representative single-family homes in each of 55 cities. To model the electric grid, the researchers assumed moderate decarbonization of the grid, a 45% decline in emissions over the 15-year lifetime of a heat pump. So they're trying in this research to say, how much is this going to help? And and how wide of adoption can we have and should we have? They're saying, is it even feasible to have 100% adoption? And so it's kind of interesting what they found. Um, they found that around one-third of homes in the U.S. would benefit from heat pumps. The other two-thirds would actually end up costing more for the homeowner. And some would even cause more pollution and emissions than just using regular furnaces and AC. Um, just due to um, the temperature, uh, due to things like the insulation in their homes, it, it's... In order to use a heat pump, you have to have a pretty well-insulated home um, because the rate at which it's heating and cooling is slower. You know, a furnace is going to blast hot air into your house, and it can blast it faster than it's eking through the holes in the windows and the roofs and all that. Um, but a heat pump does it slower. It's a more um, consistent type heating. Uh, so it, if, if you have a lot of drafts and things like that, it's going to remove the heat. If you're, if you're trying to heat your house, it's going to remove that heat faster than it's pumping it out. So anyway, they, they were saying two thirds would not benefit from a heat pump. And some of those two thirds would even be detrimental to the amount of pollution and emissions being put into the atmosphere. And as you say that, just to kind of back that up, you know, I, I am very interested in this technology on a personal level, because I think, you know, if I end up wanting to make my home more energy efficient, or if I end up building a home in the future, is it possible uh, for me to implement this? And how, how much of an impact will it have on me personally? And so I tried looking at what people are saying, people that have heat pumps, people that install heat pumps. And I was blown away by the variation in opinions. There were people saying like, this is the future. We all need to move to heat pumps. It's going to save us. You know, I know there are a lot of uh, like rebates and, and incentives in certain parts we'll get of the to world. some of those in a minute, yeah. And, and so that factors in as well. Um, and so there were people that just felt like this is everything. And there were others who said it's awful. Like I've got a heat pump and it hardly works at all. Uh, you know, it's, it's noisy. It doesn't really heat up my home that well. And it's funny because some of the websites I saw, the pros of having a heat pump were, it's quiet. You can't even hear it compared to a furnace. <laughs> yeah. And some of that, I think it has, it depends on where it's placed. Oftentimes, if you're installing a heat pump in a new build, you can make the right space for it and you can put it in the right place. Whereas people who are trying to replace like their current heating and cooling system with a heat pump, uh, it, it doesn't get, you know, they have to put it on their patio or something like that. Sure. Um, anyways, I just found it so fascinating, uh, that, that there was a whole list of cons that I collected, uh, from people who have heat pumps. And 
I had a whole list of pros that I collected from other people that have heat pumps and they were completely contradicting each other. But the more I dove into it, the more I saw what you're saying, which was it's people that, you know, live in a, in a more moderate climate typically that are big fans of heat pumps. It's people that have well insulated homes that aren't drafty. Uh, right. There's just different factors that come into play that determine whether a heat pump is actually going to be beneficial for somebody or not. Yeah, it's well said. Uh, you know, when it comes to the cold homes thing, like I said, Norway has some of the highest adoption. Um, apparently, they're getting better um, in colder environments. And a lot of what people say is that it's good to have like a backup. So you have your heat pump and then you have a furnace. You could have a regular gas furnace or you, there's like electrical heaters that you can use that kick in as a backup. So, okay, it's dropped down to 20 degrees Fahrenheit. So the um, the regular furnace is going to kick in and help out. And they're saying you're still in this way saving um, a lot of money on a monthly basis for your bills, your utilities, and you're also using a lot less fossil fuels than you would. Yeah, you still got to use that furnace every once in a while, or you got to, you know, use that extra electric heater every once in a while or whatever. But, um, but it's still, it's, it's still good for the environment. It, it It's hard because like you said, I, th I think one of the biggest things here to consider is, is the insulation. And that's where we get into the next piece of this, which is cost. We've talked about a lot of different things here. I've just mentioned having a heat pump and a furnace and people upgrading their insulation and all these things. I mean, it, it can get expensive. Um, before I get into the individual costs, with that research paper I just talked about, it, it goes on to say that uh, they noted that if the heat pumps were very widely adopted, it would require massive infrastructure upgrades to support the electric grid. Uh, it doesn't take into account all the other technologies being implemented that require more electrical use as well. So they're already saying, like, if everybody were to implement heat pumps, we would have to upgrade the grid just to be able to support that much of a surge in electrical usage. Um, but that doesn't take into account the use of EVs. EVs and just consumption in general, right? There's There's so many applications. And what you're saying makes sense that we'd have to beef up the electrical grid because we're talking about replacing like you know furnaces that that burn natural gas or something with s something that uses electricity it doesn't matter how efficient heat pumps are it's still adding more of a strain to the grid if you're uh, requiring electricity where you weren't before exactly it might be using a lot less energy overall but it is shifting that energy use from one place to another from fossil fuels to the grid and the grid isn't built for that, right? And and we sometimes forget just how much of the grid comes from fossil, fossil fuels. fuels. Yeah, exactly. I was just going to mention that. There's got to be a huge surge in upgrading the grid to renewables. Um, or, yeah, what, you know, maybe it'll, it'll still save some emissions. But really the idea is to, is to get the grid renewable. So the cost involved there is just... I mean, it's astronomical. The study didn't cite um, the cost to upgrade the grid in order to be able to handle 100% heat pump adoption. Um, but we've done episodes in the past on the Army Corps of Engineers infrastructure report card, and they're saying that it would cost nearly $200 billion by 2029 to upgrade the grid to current standards. 
that's not necessarily taking into account adding more capacity for heat pumps or for EVs or anything like that. Um, but that just kind of puts into perspective even just the grid as it is right now, getting it to current standards that we need it to be at would cost $200 billion. We're, we're got to be looking at you know half a trillion up to a trillion dollars to do the types of grid upgrades we're talking about here. Um, all right, so then going from there, the individual like residential cost, right? If I as a homeowner am going to exchange my furnace and AC unit for a, a heat pump, what is that going to require? Well, the average cost is between ten and twenty thousand uh, dollars for the installation of a heat pump, whereas the upfront cost for like a uh, furnace or traditional AC unit, um, we're talking like you know most of those are going to be between like fifteen hundred dollars to to nine or ten thousand um, dollars. It came it came up somewhere between two and eight times the cost to install a heat pump rather than your traditional AC or furnace. That's a wide range, right? Two to eight times. But like you said, there's different types. There's different efficiency levels of these heat pumps. And there's different types of furnaces and AC units as well. So it's a wide range, but it is definitely more costly to install those heat pumps. And for the average American, if your furnace goes out and you need to replace it, you would rather spend $2,000 on it than spend $12,000 on a heat pump, right? Now, that being said, there's also the issues of insulation, so um, if I were to call someone and say, hey, come install a heat pump in my house, my furnace just went out, right? Or I just want to be more um, conscientious of my emissions. I want a heat pump put in. They're going to come and say, oh, wow, like you are going to have to replace your windows because these are old windows and, and they're not keeping the air in. And also um, the R value of your installation is way too low. So we're going to have to upgrade that too. I mean, now we're just getting into like tens of thousands of dollars potentially, right, to upgrade your heat pump. And for most people, there's just no question. They're just going to say, nah, okay, put in a normal furnace for that two or three grand. Yeah, and I think the argument is that, well, you're going to save on your monthly costs. Right. So it comes down to like what is the payback period? At what point do you actually break even – uh, from all those additional upfront costs to install a heat pump. And it it's a it takes several years, right? And it depends on all these different factors that we're talking about. Um, but if you're talking five, seven years, maybe it's more, maybe it's less. Uh, but a lot of people don't stay in a home for that long or they don't know how permanently they will be in a home. And so it's a big risk to say, oh, I'm going to spend all this money up front uh, and as much as generally people want to do things that are good for the planet, but until it benefits them in their pocketbook, uh, they're probably not going to make those changes. Yeah. Some people, um, number one, just can't afford that. Most people don't have like 12 grand in their bank account to just be like, yeah, I'll whip that out and pay that in cash real quick for you to come put that heat pump in. But others who might have that money, it still doesn't necessarily make sense, even if they're going to save in the long run. For most people, I think if you go to them and say, hey, I'll give you $10,000 today, or I'll give you $100 a month for the next 10 years, even though that $100 a month for the next 10 years ends up being more than $10,000, most people are going to say, give me the $10,000 in cash right now. Because it's it's money I can see all at once. I can do something with it now. Um, $100 a month it just becomes normal. You don't really feel it. So it's like, 
if my heating bill goes down from a hundred bucks a month to forty dollars a month, do I really notice that in a in a way that is impactful? Um, I am going to notice the twelve thousand dollars that I spend out of pocket. Yeah, and it it makes me think of something else I saw while doing research on heat pumps, and that's that the same technology can be used for multiple applications. We talk about heating and cooling a home. It can also be used for heating and cooling your water in your home. Uh, there's even these ventless dryers. Uh, they're more common in the Europe than they are in the U.S., but you don't have to like vent moist, hot air to the outdoors from your house. You can you can put a dryer anywhere. <laughs> you can have it in a closet or something. Um, and that sounds like a really cool idea because it's using this heat pump technology. But not only does it take quite a bit longer to dry your clothes, these dryers are also often like twice the cost. And so do you save like monthly on, on the energy costs? Sure. But again, that's, uh, you're, that, that's a tough pill to swallow to be able to take on all those upfront costs to hope that it pays back in the future. You basically have to be so convinced that this is going to be good for the planet and bought into that. If you're really going to make a step like getting a, a ventless dryer just for that purpose. Exactly. Now you had mentioned earlier um, that there are some like subsidies. There are some rebate programs and just recently in the U S that became a reality as well. Um, with the Inflation Reduction Act uh, that was passed, they have granted some uh, some some help for people who want to purchase um, a heat pump, which is great. Um, so, just some numbers here: there's a tax credit, which is thirty percent of the cost of a heat pump, up to two thousand um, dollars. So, I don't think in most cases that $2,000 will reach 30%, but $2,000 off a heat pump basically as a rebate on your taxes uh, and well, a tax credit. And then there are state rebates available um, up to $8,000 depending on your income level. So I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like if you earn around your state median income, then you can get $8,000 in a rebate for the purchase of your heat pump. Um, if you make like a hundred and 20 or 150%, something like that of your, of the income, of the state median income, then you can get half of that. So like $4,000 off your heat pump. So, I mean, it is, it's significant. We're talking about $2,000 from the government, um, 8,000 from your state rebate. And that can cover a, a large amount, if not all of your heat pump, depending on the size and type that you get. Um, it's not helpful for, you know, even if you're making a lot of money, and you don't qualify for those rebates because you're making so much money. Um, just because you're making 150% of your state's median income doesn't mean that you would rather spend 12000 instead of $2,000 on, you know, replacing a furnace. So there's still, there's still some work perhaps to be done on the incentives to really get a wider adoption. Um, but it's, it's a start, I guess, at least, and it's better than nothing. Yeah, and I think rebates are, you know, a, a big factor. I think we're also going to see adoption for other reasons. Um, I know that just last year, 2022, in Washington, there was a, a, 
a law that was put into effect. I think it's uh, buildings that are four stories or higher were required to use heat pumps instead of other forms of heating and cooling. Interesting. And I think there's some more specifics on what those regulations look like. Sure. Um, I know that there are in some parts of Europe, there are also some regulations where it's kind of being forced a little bit more. And so whether or not there's a financial incentive, in some cases, uh, people will have to adopt this technology. And on top of that, you know, there's going to be some natural uh, incentives as far as like gas or natural gas and fossil fuel prices increasing. Europe is experiencing this right now, right? With the war in Ukraine, um, with Russia and the whole gas issue that they're having, energy prices have increased. And so as energy prices go up, it's going to be natural for a shift towards heat pumps because it's just going to save you more money. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And, you know, we talk about how much could somebody save by in their monthly energy costs by switching to a heat pump. And it's so hard to nail those numbers down, especially right now, because there's been such wide fluctuations in like oil costs, you know, and natural gas costs. And it depends on where you live. But you're right. Some of those natural factors are going to come into play where in the coming years where right now, perhaps it's it's not as financially beneficial to switch switch to a heat pump. Maybe in the future it will be. Right. You also factor in that with any technology, as it gets wider adoption, the cost of that technology comes down. Yep. The S curve. Yeah. So all of these factors are coming into play that will determine how much adoption we'll see. Yeah, I think I I do think there will definitely be an increased adoption. That S curve, you know, it, as it's basically a kind of an ex, an exponential where as more adoption happens, it's cheaper to produce them. There's more profit margin to be made. More investment is put into it. Technology improves. There's and that leads to wider adoption. So it's a little bit of a of a feedback loop there um, until it eventually will flatten out again. But but there is definitely potential for. Um, a pretty sharp increase. And then like, like you're saying, um, you know, we may, we had the example earlier of if you were asked, do you want $10,000 now or a hundred dollars a month um, for the next 10 years? What if it was, do you want a hundred dollars or do you want $10,000 now or $400 a month for the next 10 years? Well, suddenly the return on investment is like four times on that. And so the idea being if, if energy prices increase enough, should say when energy prices increase enough because of uh you know lack of supply or because of bottlenecks or whatever it is um yeah that the need for having a, a heat pump perhaps whether it's running on your own solar or or if electrical prices stay low enough it's just going to make way more sense to make that switch than to stay will it ever be feasible to have 100% adoption likely not um, is it going to change the whole world? Uh, I think it's it's got its potential for good, but um, the forces of collapse continue forward whether or not we're using heat pumps. Yeah, so going back to that title that we've changed from these episodes, can it save us? Will it save us? I think when you just look at the fact that it's like, oh, it's you know 300% more efficient than electrical heating uh, from these the other sources, you might think, well, man, heating and cooling is 50% of uh, Europe's energy consumption. And so if everyone adopted this, like we're talking about 
reducing emissions and and energy consumption by 15%. And yet, like you talked about, when you really get into the models where they've tried to map this out, you get widespread adoption, maybe that looks more like 1.5%. So I'm a big fan of heat pumps. I think there's a lot of good to them. But as with most technologies, it's complicated. <laughs> there are pros with the cons. And will it save us from collapse? No. Heat pumps are not going to lead an anarchist revolution that will destroy power from the top, re return the power and equality to the people. It's not going to uh, create a steady state economy where the population is maintained and, and ecosystems heal and biodiversity returns <laughs> to the earth. And... Now, hold on. We have <laughs> talked about AI. Maybe you incorporate AI with heat pumps and suddenly we've got a, a whole army that can... <laughs> Leader, we did have some pretty magical thinking with AI, so we, we can mix that with some technohopium of, of all these other technologies, and boom, we live in a utopia. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.